what I think has changed is that when the DOJ is saying new FCPA, that the sanctions are the new FCPA, they're not talking about that they intend to compete statistically with FCPA enforcement or that the rhetoric is really the most important thing. What I read them to be saying is, we expect you to do risk-based due diligence. We're going to give you guidance that helps you understand what we expect. Welcome to the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, hosts Tom Fox and members of the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again for another episode of the award-winning All Things Investigation. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Mike Kuniki and Jan Kunin-Ivasevich from Europe to talk to us. I find this incredibly interesting that lawyers from France would talk to U.S. lawyers about U.S. actions and issues. But here we are. And they wrote a great couple of articles. It was one article separated into two different parts. And it's essentially about what the Department of Justice has been telling us now for nine months. Sanctions is the new FCPA. And you guys looked at what that means from the FCPA perspective. You looked at it, what it means from the sanctions perspective and really what it means going forward. And so I wanted to first commend you guys for writing this article. It is absolutely propitious that we get this information out because not only are you absolutely right, we are not talking about this enough. So. Enough of me. Let's get to the stars of this episode. How do you guys want to start this? You want to describe what led to the article? Then we can take a deep dive into it. Yeah, sure, Tom. I mean, this has really been a passion project for Jan and me for almost a year at this point. And so we're very happy to finally get the articles out. And as always, it's a pleasure to be here on the pod with you. After the February 2022 further invasion of Ukraine by Russia, the U.S. and Europe had a very strong response in terms of trade sanctions. Historically, and even until very recently, when you talked about trade sanctions compliance, it was get your world check report, and that's basically it. Are the names there? They're not? Great. Go ahead. But with the invasion of Ukraine, and for Jan and me sitting here in Paris, not too far from us and not too far from Jan's family in particular, I think it took a little bit more of a serious tone. And we also had a lot of clients and knew of a lot of companies that as a policy decision wanted to very broadly interpret the sanctions and really didn't want to do business with Russia. For us as anti-corruption lawyers, by training and from baby lawyers, we're used to, Tom, the high probability analysis. The idea that on the one hand, it's a crime to pay a bribe, for sure. And on the other hand, it's also a crime to pay somebody with the awareness of a high probability that there's corruption without going through due diligence to gain an actual knowledge that's credible that it's not. And so, frankly, it was shocking to us that there was really this over-reliance and over-emphasis on ownership, particularly from a U.S. sanctions perspective. Now, these are laws that are announced 
the sanctions laws are announced really to further national security and foreign policy objectives of both the U.S. and Europe. It cannot be the case, Tom, that an oligarch moving 1.1% of ownership of a strategically critical Russian asset to his mom, his mistress, some guy in the mailroom, achieves foreign policy objectives. And when we looked into it, we realized, well, that's definitely not what the U.S. nor the EU is saying, and they say it in their own ways in different ways. So from our perspective, Tom, we really felt for a long time now, like KYC is dead, and you have to apply an anti-corruption mindset to trade sanctions compliance. Russian trade flows haven't really reduced in a lot of important aspects of their economy, and these are very sophisticated schemes. You know, we've seen fake documents, fake people, engineered by people who know how WorldCheck and other screening services work. So we've been thinking for a long time about how to articulate our feelings, but also in a way that gives companies practical guidance. And we, we hope to have achieved that in our articles. John, before I ask you to weigh in, I want to make the following observations, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine crystallized in many ways policy objectives, certainly from the United States government, that initiated under the Trump administration. And as many sanctions have been levied since the Russian invasion, and I think maybe we're on the 12th round, may have lost count. This didn't come out of thin air or nowhere. During the Trump administration, I used to joke to my export control friends, what changed this afternoon as opposed to this morning? Because there were so many new regs coming out around trade sanctions under the Trump administration. And it really laid a groundwork, I think, for what the Biden administration did after the Russian invasion. But with the acceleration from the Russian invasion and the explosion of trade sanctions, from the business perspective, I guess what I saw is maybe what you're seeing, Mike, or what you articulated in the article. There has to be a different way to look at trade sanctions. And you're absolutely right. Our KYC analysis still of some use is no longer the use and that we need to take a broader approach because the regulators are going to take a broader. And so I guess the Russian invasion, as I said, it shouldn't have said crystallize, but it put in place maybe on a permanent basis what started under the Trump administration. And now it's something that every compliance professional has to put into their risk assessment and risk management strategy. Beyond maybe you can pick up where you see, certainly from, say, Mike doesn't have a European perspective, but Yank like me. So what do you see from all this, John? Right. Well, um, and it's absolutely a pleasure to be back on your show. I see it through a few different lenses, through a European lens, through a sanctions lawyer lens, and through the lens of an anti-corruption professional. I think, Tom, the one thing that we need to keep in mind is that these sanctions imposed since February of 22 against Russia are unprecedented in many respects. They're unprecedented in their intensity and their scope. And in terms of the target, because Russia before these sanctions was fairly integrated in the international finance and trade system. And what I think is quite distinctive of the situation today, obviously we all know that the governments in the US and Europe have emphasized this, that companies are at the forefront of the geopolitical tensions but what we're noticing, and this is actually quite significant when we think about risks, since you touched on that, is that two-thirds of the world population live in countries that haven't imposed sanctions on Russia, 
or simply don't really care for the sanctions in Russia. And so when you're a company with worldwide operations, not only do you have to deal with the direct potential nexus with Russia, but you have to deal with risks arising out of Russia sanctions that may materialize or pop up in different parts of the world. So we're seeing a, in a way a new geography of sanctions risks. And on top of that, as Mike mentioned, Russia obviously has no intention in complying with the sanctions. And there are people out there who, for various reasons, have noticed that they can make a lot of money in helping others evade or circumvent the sanctions. And so when you're an international operator dealing, you know, doing business in this context, you obviously need to deal with the trade sanctions, but you need to deal with them in this uniquely and fastly evolving environment. So the overlay that you guys put in terms of the solution, because we've identified the issue or perhaps the problem, but Mike and Jan, how do we move towards incorporating an anti-corruption approach into a trade sanction approach? And at the end of this, we'll probably ask you to look down the road a little bit. Is it going to be a framework that's going to be either broad enough or dynamic enough to allow, if we have issues with China or some other part of the world that right now is, as you said, Jan, an integrated trading partner, and we have to move to something different. The solution, Tom, I think is to really take a holistic view of your in-house compliance department and where a lot of companies, I think, particularly those who have been under investigation for FCPA or related issues, have large or larger relative to other departments, anti-corruption teams who are trained and have experience weighing relative risk, focusing on the greatest risk areas, reassessing risk if they need to. We need to have that mindset applied jointly with the trade sanctions or the export controls teams, where historically it's a very technical area. The people on those teams have, I think, a lot of technical experience and knowledge, but maybe not necessarily the same mindset where they've had from a KYC perspective, you know, you can't do risk-based reviews of 100,000 suppliers, you know, or 10,000 transactions per month. But if those two teams work together, I think you can identify very defensible and well-documented ways to identify what are the highest risks of evasion. And then taking that skepticism and maybe paranoia that we develop in the anti-corruption space and applying it to those select transactions. In the case of Russia, maybe it's easy. Maybe it's anything that used to be a sale into Russia, but now is into Kazakhstan. Well, why? And the US government has got out of its way over and over again in the last few months to highlight for us in speeches and articles and in enforcement actions, here are some countries where we think there's a lot of evasion risk. You should focus on those. You companies are on the front line on national security issues. This isn't just kind of commercial disputes, right? This is foreign policy. This is war. And so we're not suggesting you get rid of the trade team and that the anti-corruption team takes over everything. They need the expertise and detailed knowledge of the regs that the trade controls team typically has. But you really need to marry the two and have each benefit from the other. And Jan, I'm going to actually overlay some more for you as I did last time based upon Mike's remarks. But one other point. In December of 2021, the Biden administration released its policy on combating corruption. In that policy statement, they elevated anti-corruption to a national security issue of the United States. 
previously have been a criminal issue or perhaps a civil issue under the FCPA or other laws. But when something becomes a national security issue, it obviously has much more visibility. It typically means more governmental resources are poured into the area, both in terms of regulation and enforcement, visibility. We have new players brought into the space. So for instance, NATO is given a role in anti-corruption. So much higher visibility for anti-corruption. But some of the descriptions that Mike went through, the transshipment, the suspicious other countries, Kazakhstan or other country, we've seen that in the FCPA world for some time now. Computer sold to Dubai magically ended up in Iran. And there were bribes to get them into Dubai, and that was the FCPA component. But it was clear in the enforcement actions they were being utilized to evade sanctions. So this is really not something that is new but why is it new for companies to have to respond so much more robustly? I guess I'm struggling with, this has really been going on a while, perhaps not at this level, but can't we use other strategies that we've employed from other cases? Or am I just being a simpleton and that's what you guys were saying? Well, no, no, I think you raise a very good question. It's very interesting how in 2021, where there's a lot of discussion in the anti-corruption community about, well, what does it mean for taking the fight against corruption to the level of national security interest. And today we're seeing how now more and more countries and organizations are deploying sanctions programs to deal with corruption. We have the Magnitsky sanctions in the US. The EU is about to roll out a new program to deal with corruption using sanctions. And sanctions is, has been and will continue to be the primary tool to advance foreign policy interests. And here, I think when it comes to Russia and others, really the emphasis at the moment is not so much on imposing new sanctions. That's what we saw last year, right? With the multiple rounds that we went through, the EU has just adopted round 11. But now the emphasis from a policy perspective is on effectiveness, effective implementation. And for the sanctions to work well, the private sector needs to be able to fully implement these regulations and controls. You start to see some patterns or where these two worlds come together. When you think about various schemes, for corrupt payments or various schemes to evade the sanctions, or there's lots of similarities in illicit finance problems and situations and ways to evade the sanctions. So I think, Tom, is definitely a question of scale. Posing sanctions on Russia was no easy task. And I think, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, there's a third country stakeholder problem with these sanctions because we're not in a system where basically everybody in the United Nations agreed to impose sanctions against Russia. Many countries, as I said, either haven't imposed or simply don't care. And so that creates opportunities for those who want to circumvent and evade. And that in turn leads the policy cycle to focus on, well, what can we do to prevent these circumvention and evasion patterns? And that's where you go back to the question of due diligence and enhanced due diligence, because if you take sanctions seriously and you want to implement them seriously, you need to have a device, a tool that will allow you to detect such risks. And I would just add, Tom, to that, and experienced sanctions practitioners would be the first to tell you to your question, not much has really changed as far as the framework. You do have these new sanctions as to Russia, that sanctions against Iran have been around for a long time, for example, and always been a national security priority in that respect. What I think has changed is that when the DOJ is saying new FCPA, that the sanctions are the new FCPA, they're not talking about that they intend to compete statistically with FCPA enforcement or that the rhetoric is really the most important thing. What I read them to be saying is 
we expect you to do risk-based due diligence. We're going to give you guidance that helps you understand what we expect. And if you look at, for example, the very officially named TRICEL compliance note from earlier this year, it's a high probability guidebook. It's telling you, here's what we care about. Here's what we've seen. Here are red flags. Here are high-risk countries. For any anti-corruption practitioner, you know what to do with that. And they expect you to do that. They know yeah. companies are at the front lines. That's what they're expecting. So for me, that's kind of the new thing is that they expect more than just KYC. For a very long time in the world of export controls, there is the problem of diversion and of course things going, ending up in a destination or an end user that was not the intended one. All of that is known, but I think what's actually quite new, particularly in Europe, where you know, I think we've really entered into a new age for EU sanctions, is that there was a time where I think there's a perception that sanctions was primarily a problem for financial institutions. And with the Russia sanctions, you have entire segments of the economy in Europe that are impacted by the controls, by some of the measures. And so you have lots of operators actually you know, have to learn about the sanctions for the very first time. And that's quite a challenge. And it's been in some cases quite a steep learning curve. And this is quite new. So there's something that is sometimes underestimated because there's this view that and for some time, if sanctions were mostly you know, financial sanctions and that we're doing a lot of export controls and other types of measures. Let me ask this because I'm beginning to sense, could we characterize sanctions violations as just corruption? And we move to a place where now it's not simply that they're selling to people we don't want them to sell to, or they're providing products to a country we don't want that country to have those products to, it's really just corruption. And if we maybe even took that step back and started to analyze it as corruption, that would give us this impetus for this, not new framework, but a more encompassing framework. Is that a discussion that you guys are having either internally or with clients, customers, or other colleagues across Europe? There's certainly a moral aspect to it where there's some conversions, Tom. For me, and talking with Jan over the last several months, I'm conceptualizing this article. It was more of a convergence and way of thinking that these things are all anti-evasion principles, that how do people evade the prohibition on bribery? They use a third party. What do we do to fight that evasion technique? The high probability standard. What are they saying now with sanctions? You have to think, is there a risk? Does something not make sense what's really happening here? So for me, it's less of a everything is corruption, but more of a convergence of anti-evasion practices and expectations. Well, I fully agree with what Mike has just mentioned, obviously. But I would add that at the end of the day, the world has become a quite a dangerous place for companies and compliance professionals facing incommensurable pressure and often find themselves in very, very complicated situations. So the goal here really in this exercise is to formulate a framework, formulate a method to look at this problem to make the life of an in-house lawyer or a compliance professional a little easier. Not saying that the risks will disappear, but it's a system. It's to be equipped to function in this world that's becoming more and more complicated by the day. Let me uh, ask you to look down the road and go in a little bit different direction. And that direction is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. I raise that issue not because of the specific target of China, of the Xinjiang region, or even of forced labor by the Uyghurs, but of the mechanism 
that requires a company to prove that the goods or products did not come from the Xinjiang region. And that's an affirmative burden we obviously don't have in place with the FCPA or any other anti-corruption legislation across the globe I'm aware about. Many have speculated we may move to that model through legislative enhancements of the FCPA or new laws. Is that something that's a part of the discussions you all are having, or is that just so unique to the United States that it's really not risen to that level as yet? It's a really interesting question. In Europe, there's a lot of discussion about human rights law, supply chain, compliance, and I think more legal consequences for not checking. And so I think in Europe, we're kind of already taking a step in that direction. But for me, what's made the FCPA so successful is this awareness of a high probability threshold, which was added in the conference committee. Somebody pulled it from a 1980 House report that was pulling it from the model penal code, and we don't see anywhere else in the U.S. criminal code. But it makes you have to look. It makes you have to care. And when you look and you care, then you actually can find things and stop things. And so to the extent that there's an affirmative duty to know that it's not something, it's just another way of really falling into the same prove the negative challenge. I think in practice, how people would try to deal with that would be either dealing with trade sanctions today and anti-corruption in the last 20 years. What am I aware of? What are the risks? Do I think those risks can be explained or mitigated? And if not, can I say it's actually not coming from there? There's an interesting proposal regarding forced labor in Europe at the moment. It's, in, I think, in the early stages of the process, but essentially it would introduce a form of imports ban on products made of forced labor or institute a prohibition on making available on the EU market of products that were manufactured in whole or in part with forced labor. But I don't think the draft today envisions this type of presumption system that was used in the US. So it will be interesting to see where the draft goes. But the use of presumptions is also something that we see sometimes discussed when thinking about various regimes and systems or concepts for sanctions and trade controls. As you know, today, the G7 and other countries in the sanctions coalition made the decision not to impose a full embargo on Russia. Some call it a soft embargo, but essentially there was other concept. There was a concept to say basically everything is no exports to Russia unless it's one of the goods that's listed and authorized. So we'll see where this goes. It's definitely very interesting. Let me ask about if I could maybe separate the U.S. out of this, because the EU and the United Kingdom have both issued very robust, multiple stages and levels of sanctions, if not following the U.S., maybe in conjunction or sometimes even leading. Do you see a desire in either the United Kingdom or the EU for this type of robust enforcement? And is the framework you're suggesting, do you believe it would allow a company to have at least a workable starting point for a wider variety of enforcement than simply the United States? That's a great question. My only problem with it is that it calls for a long answer, Tom, so I'll just uh, <laughs> I'll just uh, share some initial thoughts because it's hotly discussed topic. I don't know so much about the UK, but it definitely within the EU. And the reason right now is fairly simple. So EU law is made at the EU level, but when it comes to the sanctions, their implementation and enforcement is done within each of the member states, and there are 27 member states of the union. 
So it means that Lithuania, Germany, France, Belgium, or Poland, they implement and they enforce EU law, EU sanctions within their own jurisdiction, and they're free to do it using their full discretion. So we don't really have a unified, federalized, or centralized system for implementation and enforcement. There's a lot of guidance that's being issued by the European Commission and others, primarily the European Commission. But we don't have today you know, a, a European DOJ or a European OFAC that has you know, exclusive jurisdiction for investigating and prosecuting and resolving violations of EU sanctions. There is an interesting discussion running at the moment about whether perhaps the jurisdiction of the European public prosecutor, newly created body, should be expanded to include certain categories of violations of EU sanctions that would still require a change in the legal text. So that's not for the very, very near future. But what this means concretely is that when you're a company and you have operations in various member states, well, you may have to interface and deal with various national competent authorities for licensing, for seeking guidance. And also when it comes to enforcement, there's now a discussion about, well, what to do if you're facing with the potential problem. And just as there's no unified centralized system for potential disclosures at the EU level, because there's no authority, there's very little common principles across the member states on what to do if you have a problem. So as the focus will continue to be on enforcement, and that's definitely the focus, one, because politically, I think the EU leaders are slowly coming to the conclusion that there's not a lot left that they could target with the sanctions, so they're going to focus on enforcement. And second, because it's the cycle of implementing the measures, resources are being allocated and cases are advancing, and particularly in some of the member states, you're seeing a lot of investigatory activity. I think we'll have in the coming months and years, lots of discussions about effectiveness of enforcement in Europe. And I think that will also tie back into the broader G7 conversation with the UK and the US. And that's another parallel to the anti-corruption world, which I think is quite interesting because we have a forum, International Anti-Corruption Space, a club at the OECD, where there is peer review of efforts to enforce certain laws. And it will be interesting if the G7 will also serve as a forum for discussions between partners about progress in implementing and enforcing the sanctions and what happens if some of the members of the G7 are lagging behind. So definitely more to come in that respect. Dylan, I wanted to end with asking you something along the lines of what would you suggest, how would you counsel a client or what advice might you give to a chief compliance officer or a compliance professional today that they could start to think through a more comprehensive approach not simply anti-corruption compliance, but also export control and, dare I say, anti-money laundering as well. I know that's not been the topic of this podcast yet, but we may revisit that later. But how can we begin to help shape a more comprehensive approach? Sure, Tom. The fundamental problem for many companies is that they aren't the police. They can't actually you know, seize the wire transfer information. It's going to be difficult to ever know truth with a capital T, what happened. What they should consider doing is, well, what can I put in place that is an objectively defensible system in which I can make subjective judgments and make them repeatedly in a way that's defensible relative to each other? And so in the anti-corruption space, what are the factors I'm going to consider for assessing risk? And how can I make sure I'm doing that in a consistent way? I think one of the biggest pitfalls to avoid is being able to be accused of maybe putting your thumb on the scale in favor of one particular, in, in the case of the FCPA, agent or consultant, but here maybe trading partner. And then 
those are systems that evolve over time and hopefully in a documented way. And if you ever then get into trouble later, that's something that's defensible rather than just saying, well, I just kind of had a feeling, right? And applying a similar framework to trade sanctions and export controls is what we feel that the DOJ is inviting everyone to do. Here's some guidance as to risk. Here's the types of risk, types of countries. You can start to picture what a risk matrix might look like based on what they're telling you. And again, are you going to be right 100% of the time? No. Are you going to know what percentage of the time you're right? No. Are there going to be mistakes? Yes. But from a process perspective, if you develop a framework like that and consistently apply it, you are able to defend the integrity of your judgment process. So we've seen some people do what Jan has called catch and release, which I think is excellent. Anything involving Russia or formally involving Russia, but maybe with a new owner, a new partner, catch it, think about it, and decide whether to release it. Jan, any final thoughts? I think we've heard from officials lately that sanctions are the new FCPA, but we've also heard that sanctions are here to stay. I think we're not done imposing sanctions against Russia. There will be a time where we'll have to, even if there's a pause in imposing sanctions, we will live in a world under the sanctions against Russia. And if the war comes to an end under its peace negotiation and then they make peace, there will be a discussion about the lifting and that will also have questions. So, you know, I think we'll be thinking about these topics and discussing these topics quite a lot in the years to come. Well, I for one hope we're discussing them on this podcast because yes, this has been a fabulous discussion. I wanted to thank you guys again for uh, writing the article. I thought that was just great. Very timely, something we need to start getting out to the marketplace, the marketplace of ideas. So kudos. And I am positive we're going to be talking about these topics down the road. Thanks a lot, Tom. Really appreciate it.